0: Yeah, it is. Sometimes I wonder if there's a race. As someone who is making the human being better, and a philosopher, it do you see sort of a race between uh, like biology and like technology as far as making the human better? Like, there's a lot of particular, say, smart drugs, or there's different kinds of things we can now take that help potentially make the hippocampus create more dendritic spines and, you know, versus going in and inserting a chip. It seems like there's a race going on there. In fact, I saw this image and I'm going to I want to try to use my words to paint you a picture because it was so beautiful. There's a sculpture and it's a two way mirror. And on one side of the sculpture, it's about four feet tall. Someone made a sculpture all in branches of a human figure pushing on it. And on the other side, it's a sculpture of a made out of tin and wires and he's pushing on it. And it just so beautifully explained what I, what I was trying to convey about this race between biology and technology, and it's it's kind of like left right brain, left right politics. It's like we need a corp, we need a corpus callosum to make everybody understand that we're in
1: this together. You know. Yeah. So that being said, I think this is, it's really interesting. I mean, I think that. Um, there's a sense in which the the, the the distinction between biology and technology is just breaking down in the case of genetic engineering, right? I mean, it's not that you just have this fixed nature uh, human nature. And the, the only question is, can you sort of develop technologies that that nature can use instead technologies now may be sort of penetrating into the thing that you took to be a sort of fixed human nature. Uh, and, I think in in there's going to be a kind of synergism i think there's going to be some eventually some genetic engineering that will actually change the biological platform uh, change the, mm-hmm. stru- the structure of the brain but then it's going to be uh mated with technologies uh, and you know that's the whole idea of cyborgs right I mean, right there there are these blends of technologies and, and biology uh, and I, I think that's uh, I think that's likely to happen. I mean, the the huge question is, you know, who's going to do this for what purposes and to mm-hmm. what extent is it going to be driven by uh, special interest? And also, if there are huge improvements, are they going to be widely accessible or are they just going to be the privileged mm-hmm. or the privileged few? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, I go back and forth on this. Sometimes I'm very, very depressed and think pessimistic and think that, you know, the rich are just gonna get biologically richer, uh, and the poor folks will be left behind. On the other hand, if you look at some technologies like cell phones, when cell phones were first produced, people thought it was gonna be sort of a, a luxury toy for the rich. And now they're, they're used all over the world. Uh, for example, they're used by uh, groups of fishermen in uh, uh, the coast of Vietnam, To coordinate their uh, catches so they can get the best prices for them, whereas before they were pretty much at the at 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 the mercy of the buyers, Uh, and it's being used to organize economic activity by very poor people. Cell phones are, and it's being used to organize political activity and to monitor, uh, you know, police and military brutality all over the world. I mean, it's it's it's. Uh, something that had completely unanticipated effects and very rapidly cell phone technology became widely affordable uh, and that's the hope. The hope is that if we get some really powerful human enhancement technologies that they'll become available pretty quickly to a lot of people. I think that if it takes the form of, of medications, of drugs, it will happen quickly because the patents will run out and they'll become generic and you'll be able to get them at Walmart for $4 for a month supply like you can with all the other stuff that's gone generic. Uh, if it's a matter of expensive operations on embryos, that's a different matter. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that's not going to be affordable for most people unless governments decide um, that to be competitive, they need to subsidize those enhancements for their people uh, because other countries will be doing it. Right. You yeah, that it could come enhancement could come to be viewed in the way that public education came to be viewed in, in the second half of the 19th century in Europe. That is that that government leaders thought that for their country to be competitive, they had to educate their people. Well, may <laughs> have to they enhance people, too. That's a possibility.
0: Yeah, I, I think um, I think that
1: would be a, a fantastic moral discussion
0: for people to have a healthy discussion for people to have. You know, and, and that brings us to another part of your book where you talk about, you know, how do we build institutions that can lead to a more moral environment, but not just the moral environment, the inputs to the moral yeah,
1: environment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, we, we, we were sort of talking about this a little earlier. I mean, it may require changes in political institutions to get beyond a, a, a two party polarized system. Uh, it may require changes in political institutions and practices that give people strong incentives to bargain and compromise and listen, <clears throat> it may require a completely different um, kind of education that really takes seriously what uh, virtual communication does, right? I mean, our, our education systems have not been geared toward uh, the problems that we've been discussing uh, that are attendant on, on the use of the internet, especially social media Uh, so it it may require a a lot of uh, changes now here's a here's not a very happy thought (laughs) uh, human beings achieve unity only uh when they have to unite against uh, an external threat so so there there are days when i pray for an alien invasion right that would sort of (laughs) get us to cooperate against those those horrible things Uh, but you know that, that's that's horrible. I mean, or it might just turn out that before we start getting better, we have to really bottom out. We have to witness sort of a total breakdown of the political system, and then people just say we can't go on like this. Something has to change. Now, now something like this happened at the end of World War II, with the creation of the modern human rights system. You know, at the end of World War II, Europe is a smoking ruin. Most of Southeast Asia is the Pacific. There are revelations of the Holocaust. And people just conclude that something has to change in a fundamental way. And so a committee is formed to, to draft a Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And it's quite radical because it's a document which states sign on to, to limit their own sovereignty over their own people. This has never happened before. Basically. This is, weird. But I don't think it would have happened in happy circumstances, right? It required a kind of, uh, you know, slamming your head against the wall and, and people realizing that something fundamental had to change or will, or this horror that we've seen will may be repeated. And so I wonder whether at some point if enough people in this country just realize that the way we're going is, is just the path to ruin, that they may, you know, be willing to take some measures to to stop that process. But I, I don't know. See the problem is a lot of people when they see that things are going bad in this country, they just blame the other group. They just say it's going it's going it's bad because of those guys. And it's bad because of all of us. We're, we're yeah. all contributing to this. And until people realize that I don't see much hope actually.
0: Yeah we're all guilty. You know and it, it's it's yeah. so it's so easy to to blame other people and, and, oh, you know, it would be different if this happened. And you know, it, it, it brings me to the back, back to what you were saying about when you sit next to somebody, be it education or a, a debate, there's that felt presence of the other. And that's so important in order to thoroughly understand or better yet, recognize yourself and the other person. You yeah. can't do that we can do it from here a little bit but when i see you and i know i could reach out and touch you it's like yeah. i can see myself in you and so this the is, moment this you do important. that go ahead. Yeah, this
1: is really important because one of the things that tribalism does is it's the death of individuality in two ways mm. it makes all of the other the same and it makes all of us the same on pain of you know being a dissident being disloyal but with respect to homogenizing the other and making them all the same it's easy to do that if you're engaged in virtual communication if you're face-to-face with a person you're more likely to take them seriously as an individual right and vice versa and that's another reason why it's really important to engage in that kind of communication right I, i think that you know it's just so easy if you're communicating on the internet and you get a message from somebody and it triggers one of these sorting mechanisms you say oh he's one of those right then automatically you're not viewing that person as an individual you're just viewing them as a member of that herd yep i think it's terribly disrespectful and it's not productive and it it doesn't allow for the possibility that well you know even if he's part of this group that's sort of generally bad he might be a little different and maybe i can engage with him if i can't engage with the others and maybe I could even learn something from him. You can't do that if you just view them as a giant monolith. They're just all the same. All liberals are the same. All conservatives are the same. And it's, it's easier to view them all the same if you're not communicating directly, picking up the cues, listening to their voice, seeing their body language, and recognizing that they really are an individual, you know, that, that even if they're saying the general things that that group says they, they're putting a different twist on it. there's some evidence that there's some differences there that's really important i think
0: yeah i agree i i'm curious to get your thoughts i i have a great quote here from um what is this gentleman's name from paul goodman and he says quote whether or not it draws on new scientific research technology is a branch of moral philosophy not a science what do you think about that quote
1: Wow, that's interesting. I mean, Paul Goodman was a very smart guy and very, um, very independent thinker. Um, Well, I I think that he's right if he means at least this much. That is, that technologies always embody and express and have an impact on values. They're not just like a, a sort of a neutral tool, like a hammer or something like that. Because they were created by somebody for some purpose, and they're going to be used in certain ways. And usually, because they don't become available to everybody at the same time, the emergence of new technology has distributive effects. It affects who owns what, who gets what, who has what advantages, what opportunities. So I think technologies are, are value-laden. And also, when, you, when you, there's kind of ambiguity in talking about technology. I mean, you might talk about a gene uh, splicing technology or gene modification technology and you just describe it as a set of chemical processes okay
0: Mm.
1: but of course when it's used it's always embodied it's going to be done in somebody's lab with somebody's funding with some purposes in mind and there are going to be various choices made about how to apply the technology so that's all going to be bound up with human interest and values And in that sense, the real technology, the technology that goes out there in the world and changes things is not going to be some sort of inert, you know, object that has no values attached to it at all. It's it's not going to be like that. I mean, if the technology really means not just the sort of technical thing, but also the practice of using it. Then I can I can see why he would say that it sort of embodies a moral philosophy or assumes a moral philosophy. It assumes some set of values. It expresses some set of values. I think that's right.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating to me. I, I, I was thinking recently too about what you said about how sometimes it it pains you to think about how there may need to be some sort of event or something to happen in order for us to get our wits about us and be like, okay, what are we doing here? Yeah. Instead of it being an, an alien invasion or, God forbid, some sort of weapons of mass destruction, do yeah. you think that we could potentially recreate that event with something like a return to the Eleusinian mysteries, where we had these rites of passage that people did, and they 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 brought this back? Because I think that's something that's inclusive. It was slaves. It was emperors. It was this... You know death of demeter where this you know this understanding of death and rebirth and that maybe you come out of this world instead of, instead of coming into it does, does that make sense
1: well you know it's really interesting you said that because i was just thinking recently about how deprived of uh of rituals especially those that you might call mystery rituals modern society is so you know we don't have them i mean we have like sports events you know and rock concerts uh but we don't have things that are an attempt to sort of help us grapple with these huge issues like like death um i i don't know i mean it's it's you know it's interesting because if you had something like that that would on a large enough scale, it would have to be sort of neutralists of different religions, for example, okay? Mm -hmm. And something like this was tried, by the way, in the French Revolution. Uh, Oh! Pierre had this idea of (laughs) festivals of the supreme being. Mm. It was supposed to be Christ or Buddha or anything like that, but the supreme being, right? And his idea was that to get people on board with the project of creating a new France, uh, you know, through the revolution, that there had to be some social glue and he didn't want it to be traditional religion because it was too much associated with the catholic hierarchy and all right. the things fighting against but he thought that human beings needed some kind of uh quasi-religious belief and they needed some public rituals uh to express this kind of belief so he had he put on a few of these festivals of the supreme being, and they, they weren't really terribly successful. A lot of the other people in the ruling group at that time thought he was completely nuts because they were a <laughs> militant a- atheists, right? But, right. Uh, you know, it's I mean it's it's an attractive idea in a way. I'm just not sure it's practical at this point. Uh, you know, it's funny because when people now talk about spirituality, they tend to talk about it in a very individualistic way. Mm-hmm. They don't think about mass participation in some uh, rituals or mysteries or things that they don't do. It. Sorry, let me turn this I thought I turned. That's fine.
0: Off. No problem. No problem. It's
1: very annoying.
0: Really.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I hadn't thought about that, but um, certainly th- this was a complaint about the industrial revolution, the scientific revolution that demystified uh the world and human existence and impoverished us by by demystifying it and there was a whole sort of romantic movement which was a reaction against this and uh, you know uh, keats complained that you know by by analyzing the rainbow into its constitutive colors with scientifically that it was sort of ruining the, the <laughs> awe and beauty of the rainbow I, I i i have just the opposite feeling i mean the more i learn about science especially about biology the more in awe i am of of everything around us because of its incredible intricacy and how surprising the path of evolution has t- taken in some ways you know it could have gone one way it went another way and uh, it's i just find it absolutely fascinating
0: i think it goes hand in hand with your idea of our evolving flexible morality i mean is can you think I truly believe that we can look at the ecosystem in nature and solve a lot of our problems. Like if you think about the way that running water flows, be it a teardrop or a waterfall, it takes the path of least resistance. And sometimes if you think about a morning, think about a glacier that that is touched by the first warm golden hands of the sun and a little bead begins to sweat and it flows down the mountainside and then it stops. It's pooling, because it hits a significant roadblock. Mm. Like that is us right now. We're that little bead of sweat that hit a little significant roadblock and we need to be reinforced by the source. And that, th- like that is the nature teaching us. And it's the same evolution you use in your book about the morality of mind evolving, we're evolving. And I think we can learn from nature. Can you think of some other structures that may be analogous to the to the mind evolving that are outside the mind?
1: You know, I mean, it's interesting you use that water metaphor because a a book that I really admire is the title is like Water on Stone, and it's a book about the human rights movement. And you know, there are a lot of people who are very skeptical about the human rights movement. They say, well, you know, the great powers like China, the United States, or Russia, they can violate human rights and there are no consequences, and there are all these various problems. But but what this the point of this metaphor, like Water on Stone, is that don't be impatient. Uh, important changes usually take a lot of time and uh, the human rights culture is gradually eroding the authoritarian brutal regimes in the world not all of them Uh, and so yeah I think that uh, the idea of evolutionary time Mm
0: -hmm. is uh,
1: fascinating because it's not on a human scale at all and I think one of the reasons that some people reject evolution and embrace creationism is that they just can't grasp the magnitude of evolution, of the evolutionary time scale. We're used to right. think in terms of two or three generations of humans or something. okay? And so they say, well, how could the human eye and all its complexity have evolved? You know, Well, look, if you start out with some single cell organism and there's a mutation that causes a portion of its surface to be sensitive to light, well then that means that if some big predator comes near it and blocks the light, it's going to have some indication that there's something there, okay? So maybe it gives it a little bit of a reproductive fitness advantage. And then there are further mutations and over many, many eons where the life of the organism, the generation is very short compared to human being, right? So you can get more mutations much more quickly over millions and millions of years, billions of years, you end up with a human eye. It's just hard for most people to grasp that. And, and that's why, you know, I tend to think that there's been huge progress made in morality in the last 300 years because it's been in the last 300 years that you've gotten the idea that people are citizens, not subjects. They've gotten the idea of hmm. democracy, the rule of law, Beginning of better treatment of animals and women, um, a better, uh, more, more rejection of racial hierarchies, and this is just like the blink of an eye in human history. The three hundred years, nothing. Okay, and so it, it it just may take time. I think that we can accelerate the, the rate of progressive change, but for people just to throw up their hands and say things like, oh, for example, like that, uh, you know, the European Union doesn't work. Well, I'll tell you one thing. The, Europe- the European Union started out as the Coal and Steel Union, and its express purpose was to link Germany and France together economically, so they wouldn't drag the world into another war,
0: right? Right. And it worked. If you know, That's all it
1: did. It worked. It's fantastic. I, I you know, clap, that. but <laughs> and people just they 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 want immediate gratification they want a new institution to work perfectly immediately they want uh moral progress to occur and rapidly and by the way when when a progressive valuable change occurs it becomes invisible because we take it for granted what we look at is what we don't have i mean the rule of law is a fantastic accomplishment even when it's imperfectly implemented like it is almost everywhere but People who live under the rule of law just take it for granted. They don't realize how entirely different human existence was through the vast stretch of human history when people didn't have the protections of the rule of law. And I think you know that, that looking at history and thinking about evolution as a process that takes a long time can make us more patient and more willing to stay committed to progressive change. That, that's, that's how I would look at it
0: yeah, it reminds me of what Jordan Peterson says, we're protected by some from something we can't see from something we can't understand. And that's culture from chaos. You know well,
1: it's I mean when 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 cultures are working, when societies are working, uh, mm-hmm. the way they work is invisible, and we take it for granted, just like the air we breathe. Uh, and it's really quite an accomplishment, you know it's I mean human cooperation on a large scale is an incredible feat. Uh, and I think the fact that human beings have moralities yeah. is crucial for that uh, but we, we take it for granted you know uh, I mean when 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 people on the right say you know the government is the problem not the solution well that's true for some things but my god without the government we'd be living in a state of complete savagery and uh, <laughs> we, we wouldn't have enforcement of property rights so we wouldn't have an economy we you know. Yeah, it it reminds me of John Dewey. John Dewey said, "What the government is the
0: shadow cast upon people by business." And it's it's so funny to me to hear some large corporations say, "Oh, the government wants to regulate everything, but they, as employers, want to regulate all their employees." You know, like would the world be any better if corporations ran it? It would be. They would just become the new government. It's this it's this fractal circle. You know,
1: there's a book about this. A philosopher, really, from Michigan. Uh, Elizabeth Anderson wrote a book called Private Government, and she talks about the fact that in corporations you have (laughs) super-authoritarian anti-democratic rule over people in the major portion of their lives.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, can you talk about any maybe some similarities and differences in morality in Ethiopia and Catalonia versus us over here in the United States? Oh, yeah, I think
1: there are huge differences. Uh, I mean, Ethiopia, I, I can't claim to know a lot about it. I was there for you know, a total of less than two weeks, and it was at the time where the the Civil War was just ending, and the transitional government invited me and a bunch of other scholars to advise them on the writing of the Constitution. And uh, we kept asking to be uh, able to go outside of Addis Ababa and, and see the country, and they kept giving lame excuses why we couldn't. Well, it turned out they <laughs> The rest of the country, there, there was a <laughs> out there, right? And they were, you know, in, they controlled the area right around Addis Ababa, uh, and so I didn't really get, you know, I before I went there, I read everything I could find on the history of Ethiopia and that thing, but, but it was absolutely fascinating. But you know, it was a, it was a sort of, un, I hope, an unrepresented time to look at Ethiopian culture because it was they had, you know, highly these Dictatorship. Then they had a Marxist dictatorship, which was just horrible. And then they had, you know, uh, over a decade of multilateral civil war, and the country was totally devastated. There was no social trust. You know, if you're at dinner and somebody said, pass the salt, everybody's thinking, what does he really want? You know, it was like total strategic thinking, no trust. Everything was horrible. But I I found it to be a, 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 you know, I think the Ethiopian people are among the most physically beautiful people in the world. They're they're tall, long necked, chisel features, sort of aquiline noses. Those are wonderful blending of sub-Saharan African and Middle Eastern uh, physical characteristics. Uh, very dignified people. Um, Catalonia, I think, is really interesting because I, I I've written a lot on secession and on the justification of secession and. I used to take a pretty dim view of the Catalan secession movement because I thought, well look, they're not really suffering any major violations of human rights, you know, at the hands of the Spanish government, and uh, why why do they insist on independence? But when I've spent time there, I've come to think that they're, first of all, that they have one good justification for secession, namely the Spanish government granted them a certain amount of autonomy, but then they revoked the autonomy unilaterally, arbitrarily, and I think that's not good. But also I think there's a different political culture in Catalonia than in uh, many other parts of Spain, um, especially in, in in among political figures in the judiciary. I think that some members of the Spanish judiciary outside of Catalonia are still sort of Suffering under a Franco hangover. They're they're still sort of authoritarian and um, And of course the Catalans were especially persecuted by Franco because Catalonia was one of the centers of the Republican Movement and the resistance against Franco when he toppled the Republic and um, I think that it's not unreasonable for people in Catalonia to feel that, given their political culture and their history, they just don't fit in well in Spain. They really don't. Um, and But the, the Spanish government has converted a lot of people in Catalonia who would have wanted just some autonomy within the Spanish state, it's converted them into secessionists because it's been so brutal and so inflexible in listening to the demands of the, of the Catalans. Um, so I think, I think the Spanish government has shot itself in the foot. I don't know if, it's, if there's really going to be a successful secession. I tend to doubt it. Um, at this point, it doesn't look like it's likely to happen. But, you know, it, it used to be that there was a reason why states had to be big. They had to be big to have enough of a population to have an army big enough to protect them against invasions, right? And they also had to be big enough to have a good market because there were usually barriers, trade barriers between countries. Well, now, none of that's true in Europe. I mean, I think it's, aside from Eastern Europe, where the Russians may be invading <laughs> Lithuania, after Ukraine, aside from that, Western Europe, there's no, uh, no need for big states in terms of security, right? You've got NATO, you've got other things, and you've got a completely open market. So there's no reason why you have to have big states. There's no reason why the, the historical shape of Spain has to stay the same. The traditional reasons for having a big state don't apply anymore. So in principle, it looks like, you know, states devolving into smaller states might make some sense, but there are problems. I think one of the, the things I worry about if Catal- Catalonia does secede is that it's gonna wreck the Spanish welfare state hmm. because Catalonia is very rich and it contributes a lot to the coffers of the central state. As does the Basque country, right? Those are the two of the richest areas in Spain, and if Catalonia secedes, and then maybe the Basque secede, and maybe some other regions secede, uh, you're going to have sort of a case of the haves leaving the have-nots behind, and I don't think the you'd be able to maintain decent welfare programs in the rest of Spain. Um, you know, by the way, this has happened in American cities. There's been a kind of yeah. like flight secession, where new yep. corporate entities, uh, so they don't have to pay taxes to support people they don't like, uh, black people in particular, and right. that's kind of a flight of the of the haves and the have-nots. And it could happen uh, in in Europe. Um, I mean, the, you know, there's this the Lega Nord this. Group in, in northern Italy that claimed that they were racially different from the southern Italians, <laughs> the Celtic. The other people were you know, a lot of the the people in the north were industrious and they were paying all these taxes to these lakes in the south. <laughs> and they, and they wanted to secede, and it, it didn't. It didn't. Uh, it didn't come off. Now they've changed their name. It's not the Lega Nord. It's just the Lega, and now they're just against all immigrants. They're not not, not <laughs> against uh, the southern Italians. And, and they thought southern Italy began about 100 miles north of Rome, actually. Uh, they were very young. Uh, no, secession is a really interesting topic. And now, you know, people are talking about secession in the United States, about the red states seceding from the blue states. You know, for the A national time.
0: divorce. Yeah. Well,
1: it didn't work very well last time. <laughs> it didn't work very well. Doctor, I, I, I have a lot more
0: questions, and I'm enjoying the conversation, but I want to be mindful of your time. Um, if you have something to go or somewhere to go, we could we could set up another date, or we could end it here, or we could continue to to well, engage we, the people. What, and
1: what I would say I do have to go in a minute, but what I okay. would suggest is if you want to talk about changing human nature and human enhancement.
0: Yeah, I would I've love
1: written, to. I've written two books on that. One's called Better Than Human. It's the more accessible one. You might have a okay. Look at it and decide whether absolutely you a session on that. Um, sure, but also. Uh, you know, uh, I think, I think secession is a pretty interesting topic and it's becoming I agree, becoming more interesting. Um, so I, I'm open. I really enjoyed this. It's great fun. And you're
0: me too. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for doing this. And, um, I'll, I'll reach out to you after, after I'll, I'll email you and we'll set some more up. This is, I really enjoyed the book. And, um, I think to anybody and everybody listening and or watching, I, I want to tell you to go out and get this book. It's It'll blow your mind. It's not like any philosophy book you've read. It's It's engaging. It's a history book. It's a book about our future. And it's, it's really well written. And the ideas are packed. And they're fun to think about. And I think it'll make you a better person if you read it.
1: <laughs> Boy, you should be my agent. You're fantastic.
0: <laughs> it's really good, Doctor. I, I will be mindful of your time. And uh, I'll reach out to you. Thank you very much for your time. I had a great time, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you.
1: Great. Thanks so much.
0: Okay. Okay. (laughs) Bye-bye. All right. you ready? Okay. Now I'm ready. Let's see what you got. Yeah. Epic. Whoa, nice one, Hello you- Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you are taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart,